Welcome to today's podcast, which will explore the subject of transboundary water management in the Himalayas. We are joined today by Ronak Shrestha of the Global Water Partnership South Asia. As a program officer, Ronak is making an effort to use interdisciplinary approaches to promote a sustainable water management agenda in the region. He is also a research fellow at the Geopolitics and Ecology of Himalayan Water Initiative of New York University Abu Dhabi and a founding member of the Asia Water Council Young Professionals Program. We are grateful to have him join us today to discuss the increasingly important topic of water management in the Himalayas. So, first off, uh, for the people who may be unfamiliar with the topic, could you tell me more about how the water resources in general are distributed throughout the Himalayas? How, how does the water distribution look like and how does it affect the geopolitics and the international relations of the area? Mm-hmm. So, so the Himalayas is a long stretch of mountains which store a lot of water and are sources for a lot of rivers. So these stretch from Central Asia, to be honest, all the way down to, uh, to Myanmar. And the rivers that flow downstream are either dependent on snowmelt or partially on snowmelt. And the monsoon season in South Asia plays a big role in providing rivers with the water. So some rivers are very much dependent on the amount of snow melt that the Himalayas provide, while other rivers also depend on monsoon rains that they gather as they flow down. In terms of distribution of water, water knows no boundaries in the sense of water follows hydrological boundaries, which are like watersheds. Uh, and the geopolitical boundaries do not coincide with hydrological boundaries. So the rivers are often shared rivers and resources. So anything happening upstream will significantly affect the countries that are downstream. Uh, so that's kind of this, just the background of how transboundary waters are. Um, yeah. Okay, I think that was a very great overview of uh, just what the region uh, looks like in general in terms of water. Okay, so uh, moving on to the topic, uh, I want to talk today more about the topic of water management. Uh, so could you tell me more what, uh, about what is entailed by this term and what are the goals of, of water management and what are, some out, what are the outcomes of uh, successful water management in general? So clean water is a human right. It's uh, a public good as well as it's something that is economically given a value in financial terms. Um, and water management entails making sure that there's equitable access to clean and safe drinking water, but also water for other purposes such as irrigation, energy, and anything else. The water basically connects a lot of different sectors together and they have to come together for this one shared resource. Uh, so it's a competitive it's there's a competition between sectors and without harmonization, between these different sectors on the same resource, then there's conflicts or there's issues of improperly managed rivers and water systems, Mm -hmm. freshwater systems that we're talking about. Um, More generally, water management, you can look at SDG 6, which is clean and safe drinking water. And within SDG 6, there's SDG 6.5, which is about integrated water resources management. And this is kind of regarded as the bible or the kind of book of reference or the thought or the framework in which water managers have now started to think about Uh, and the pillars for this is 
that it's based on it's based on a few principles, which one of which is equitable access to water. Uh, one of the main principles that it has is watersheds should be managed, rivers and water should be managed within hydrological boundaries rather than geopolitical or um, provincial and administrative boundaries. And proper water management, what what IWRM also talks about is bringing the different sectors together while viewing water as both an economic good and a public good. At the same time, good water management would also allow equitable access, which I talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. And another pin, like key pillar is water for environment. So IWRM really talks about environmental flows and how much water is required for ecosystems and the river in general. So I, so I would say that this is the main kind of framework uh, for proper water management. And within SDG 6.5, there's 6.5 there's indicators like 6.5.1, which is the degree of IWRM implementation, mm -hmm. which they measure, and 6.5.2, which is more on transboundary cooperation in water. Mm -hmm. So these go hand in hand because, as I shared earlier, the transboundary component really adds another layer of complexity to water management. So proper water management, what I would regard as proper water management would be abiding by these principles of IWRM. And there's a lot of criticism about IWRM out there as well because it's a it's very wishy-washy mm -hmm. to some extent. But at the same time, the wishy-washiness is something that I really appreciate about the context uh, about IWRM because then you can contextualize what water management means for a specific place. So there's some flexibility in there's interpretation. There's some flexibility in interpretation. So that allows... Uh, and then there's also four other pillars within IWRM, which is an enabling environment, uh, institutional mechanisms, management instruments, and finance. So these are the four pillars of IWRM. Uh, and management instruments are things like water efficiently, how to use it efficiently in terms of supply management uh, to ensure supply, but also demand management in terms of reducing demand to meet the, uh, depending on how much supply that you have. So that's a management instrument example. Institutional mechanisms are, could include more like water laws, water policies, um, institutions that cross sectors, such as in Nepal, they have something called WEX, W-E-C-S, mm -hmm. which is Water and Energy Commission Secretariat, which looks look at both sectors together. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so the institutional mechanisms and enabling environment is creating uh, such things such as multi-stakeholder partnerships or shareholder partnerships after today. Uh, <laughs> so um, so that's that part. And the finance is the one where water is the least financed because in terms of financial sustainability, it requires a lot of capital expenditure but doesn't give enough return because people view water as a basic human right at the same time. So it's not priced according to its actual value. Mm -hmm. um, so people and banks and other institutions tend to hesitate investing in water services such as urban water utilities. Mm -hmm. uh, so these are kind of four areas for proper water management and IWRM kind of encapsulates this whole thing. I see. You've given me a very great idea about what water management is. Uh, so moving into the context of the Himalayas, 
how does this how does water management look like in the Himalayas today? What are some transnational water management strategies or agreements uh, that are in place in the Himalayas? How are these implemented? And with all this in mind, how is the water currently being managed or mismanaged? Uh, what are some of the largest limitations, uh, if any, of uh, the current water management schemes in the, in the Himalayas? So looking at it historically in terms of how these borders have been drawn, they've either been a result of colonism or colonization or post-colonial times, mm. uh, and or they've been tiny nations and tribes that have been merged together to create countries. Um, looking at the Himalayas, um, if you look at Bangladesh, 70% of the water flow in Bangladesh for the winter, which is the dry season, mm -hmm. is dependent, comes directly from Nepal. So that's a huge dependence that Bangladesh mm -hmm. has on an upstream country with, with India in between as well. Um, and there are treaties in place. It's not that they aren't. There's an Indus Treaty between India and Pakistan, which is also heavily criticized. There's also a treaty between India and Nepal on the Koshi, which is also heavily criticized because these treaties were also drafted a very long time ago. And the region is very sensitive mm -hmm. uh, in terms of its resources and geopolitics itself. Something like a regional institution such as SART, which is South Asia Regional Cooperation mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. uh, SARC has been largely inactive in this region because... It's just too sensitive to operate in for cooperation. So taking that into account, looking at water itself, some of the reservoirs around the border areas uh, control floods that happen in India or Nepal, for example. Mm -hmm. So if so, the downstream country's interest is that when a flood is coming, when there's excess water, they want to close the reservoir. Mm -hmm. But what that does is it floods the upstream areas. Mm -hmm. And similarly, what some countries, upstream countries do is they open the reservoirs when there's excess of water, which causes flooding downstream. downstream. And when there's limited water, they stop and try to store water as much as possible. So then there's a drought downstream. Oh. So it's, and it's very sensitive to talk about these things. Uh, so I think there's a lot to be done. Uh, but cooperation is is not just about uh, just water sharing alone. It's more about benefit sharing in general. If, if for example, looking at water, food, and energy as three different sectors, mm -hmm. different countries have different priorities. And I can give an example from, from Thailand, Laos, the Mekong region. Uh, Laos's goal, they're making a lot of reservoirs. Their goal is to be the battery cell for Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. Thailand's priority is in rice farming. So they're into food. Uh, so with this kind of partnership, for example, mm -hmm. uh, the river can be managed in terms of benefit sharing, like food sharing and energy sharing and water is somewhere mm -hmm. in between. So there's the conversation between countries shouldn't just be solely grounded to sharing water, but also associated benefits that come with water. So with that, you can move the conversation and get to a grounding level where both parties can talk about different things. Fascinating. Okay, so we've heard a bit about how water is managed in the Himalayas uh, and how this affects, you know, countries within the 
you know, Southern Asia region. But then, as we all know, the Himalayas and the water that comes from the Himalayas, uh, you know, hydrates uh, something upwards of 2 billion people, right? And a, a disruption in this water supply is sure to have effects beyond the region. So I also wanted to ask you about uh, how water management in the Himalayas or any limitations thereof uh, could affect countries beyond uh, sort of the, the Himalayan, uh, the Himalayan hydrosphere. So what are the global implications, I guess, of water management in the Himalayas? So, so right off the bat, um, looking at the context of the UAE and the Middle East more broadly, they import a lot of food from South Asia. And in the food production in South Asia is dependent on these mountains and watersheds and water systems, including groundwater. So a loss of groundwater with the groundwater depletion uh, would significantly create this kind of chain of events that will affect food supply in other parts of the world as well. So that's one a concrete example that I can think of now that uh, the implications, but the direct implications to the region itself are also significant because then it touches livelihoods, indigenous populations, et cetera. So, yeah. I see. Um, so I want to talk about uh, sort of the fundamental maybe limitations uh, of water management. So are, are are there limitations to water management as a as a solution to the water crisis in the Himalayas? Can effective water management alone uh, avert water crisis in the Himalayas? Or is this only one part of uh, a greater solution that we need to come up with? For this, I think an integrated approach is needed where IWRM as a concept comes mm -hmm. in because you can't just solely look at water and thinking about managing water because there are other people that have vested interest in water and depend on that water. So it has to be a very integrated approach and an inclusive approach, which brings people together in conversation, um, sharing their own perspectives and ideas. And like today, how they talked about, a, it's going to be a very messy process and it's going to take a long time. And the best water management strategy, an engineer or someone can come in and prescribe that looking at this hydrologically, this is the best thing to do. But that prescription from a purely water perspective would not make sense because water is also highly dominated by engineers at the moment. Uh, but that scientific prescription of design wouldn't necessarily solve the problem, but because that doesn't make sense for some other sectors. So, for example, gender is a very important aspect because uh, women are significantly impacted uh, by water crisis. And they're, they're the household water managers in mm -hmm. a lot of cases in, when you go to rural areas mm -hmm. or even in the cities itself as well. They take on the role of carrying water, storing water and ensuring that the family has access to water. Um, and it's a huge lost mm -hmm. opportunity for them to be contributing to economic growth for the family as well. Um, so there's a gender aspect to it as well that's really important to con consider. Uh, and then there's an economic aspect of how do you actually make this uh, financially viable as in you can go to a bank and they would be interested to invest, make it more bankable, basically. Um, and then there's also, I feel like social scientists have a very important role to play because water also has a huge cultural significance. Um, and I think storytelling and the arts and humanities as a discipline plays an important role in communicating and bringing all these people together on the same table. So 
water management alone would not be able to solve the problem for sure. A very transdisciplinary approach, uh, which is inclusive, would be required. I see. Okay, so I, I'm glad you actually brought up something about, uh, you know, the importance of cooperation and communication in water management earlier, uh, because in the real world, this isn't always necessarily the case, right? Especially in the case of, um, say, uh, you know, a diplomatically sort of uncooperative government such as China, maybe, mm -hmm. uh, who in this case especially has a, an extensive leverage in water management because they're upstream of so many rivers. Uh, so what could be ways to maybe motivate cooperation with governments like these in terms of water management? So so th this would also go back to benefit sharing in mm -hmm. terms of if if they're providing you with water or they're not providing you with water, what can you bring to the table that they would be interested in? So you have to do trade-offs. So there's always going to be trade-offs when you're managing water. You'll be losing out on something and gaining something. So it's important to be aware of what you're trading off and make science-based decisions, let's say. Um, so understanding those trade-offs is important and analyzing what you can offer to get into the common ground is also equally important. In terms of cooperation with countries, I think youth have an immense potential mm. uh, because they don't they don't confound to traditional structures. They're, they're, they're much not more bound open. by the biases of their right. Mm. They're more more open to ideas, and they see the problem at a more global scale than just at within national boundaries. So I think there's an immense potential of youth to support. Of cooperation across borders and there's so many youth that are already involved in the water space so i have a lot of hope that that would actually ease the situation in, in taking conversations forward in the future and that they can influence these decision making processes they just need more space at the table where decisions mm -hmm. are being made and i think things would move forward mm, okay that's okay Okay. Uh, okay. So I want to move on to uh, the last questions that we have for today. Uh, so clearly today, as it is, water management is limited in many ways. There are many flaws, there are many drawbacks, you know, water isn't being managed in an entirely equitable way. So going into the future for water management to be sustainable and equitable in South Asia, uh, what changes would need to be made to, you know, the current methods of water management? What, what steps need to be taken? Uh, and by whom? Mm -hmm. So I think we can't afford to lose out on anyone. So that's that's the first thing. Like we can't be exclude any group because there's so much talent out there. There's so much knowledge out there, and we can't afford not to have them contributing to solve the problem of water because it's it's growing. It's it's global in scale. It affects the tiniest of localities. Um, so first and foremost, I think it needs to be very, very inclusive uh, in how it starts. Uh, the process itself, they have to be involved from the very inception of what they're planning on doing all the way to the end and monitoring. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one aspect of what needs, to, what I see is really important to change. Another important aspect, I feel like indigenous knowledge systems are very undervalued. Um, because there's so much like traditional systems have existed for ages and ages. And these people are, these people and communities are the most knowledgeable 
um, about their own localities. So it's really important to respect what they've done for ages to maintain their water systems and mm -hmm. bring that to the table and amplify their voices because they also face the brunt of whatever is happening because they're at the forefront of it. So I think that's with those two, I think those two would, would be the ones that I would like to highlight the most. Then there's also smaller things about just uh, not making it disciplinarily exclusive as well, because engineers have dominated the conversation. Mm -hmm. There's concepts like water, food, energy, nexus that have developed over time to bring this integration together. But the food sector and energy sector are heavily underrepresented and the water sector drives the conversation. So there's not enough people at the table to actually have a discourse to figure out what's the right way to move forward. And there's always someone at, at the end of the day who's losing out. But having everyone at the table will will make people accept what they're losing out. They will be aware of it, they can negotiate it, and they'll be okay with those decisions. So I think that's really important. Okay, well, I think that's all the time we have for today. Um, thank you so much for your time. You said you've shed so much light on, on the topic of water management across boundaries in the Himalayas. And I think we can all uh, walk away from this podcast with you know a greater idea of um, just how things are in terms of water management in the Himalayas and what it's going to look like or what it should look like in the future. And uh, yeah, thank you for your time. Perfect. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.